This podcast is made possible by Paxman Scalp Cooling. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Dr. Stephen Isakoff is a medical oncologist who serves as Associate Director for Clinical Research at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. He is also Director of the Mass General Scalp Cooling Program and Director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Program. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Isakoff joins us today to talk about scalp cooling during chemotherapy to help people keep some or quite a bit of their hair. He'll help us understand what it is and how it works. Dr. Isakoff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I understand that there are really two basic ways to cool the scalp during chemotherapy, what's called cooling systems and then what are called cold caps. And I know they kind of work in the same way, but if you could explain the differences between the two types. Sure. So that's right. There are two general approaches, and what they have in common is the underlying idea of by cooling the scalp slightly before, during, and after chemotherapy, um, we can generally uh, try and prevent chemotherapy-induced hair loss. The difference between the two approaches is one of them uses a machine called a scalp cooling machine, which involves the patient essentially putting on a cap that circulates fluid through it, and that cap connects to essentially a small refrigeration unit uh, that cools the fluid and pumps it through. The other uh, approach is the manual caps, um, and the way that works is rather than having a machine serve as a refrigeration unit, uh, the patient needs to bring in essentially a tub of dry ice and cool the cap manually and then put the cap on typically with a helper and that cap needs to be changed as it warms up uh, about every 20 to 30 minutes or so whereas with the machines because it's a constant circulation of cold fluid uh, the patient doesn't need to change the cap it stays on uh, once for the entire uh, chemotherapy session okay and it sounds like with the the caps that have to be changed you might need several caps for that whole process during a, a chemotherapy session. Exactly. So with one of the more common caps, uh, typically they will send somewhere between four to six caps. It takes about two hours or so for the caps to cool down to the proper temperature. And so what, what happens is uh, after the caps have been cooled, you put the first one on. After 20 to 30 minutes, that one comes off. A new one goes on and the old one goes to the bottom of the, the dry ice pile to get cold again. And by the time about two hours have passed, that, that first one is now back up to the top. So that's, that's pretty much how that one works. But it's pretty labor intensive for the helper um, who's, who's changing it out and getting the next one ready. Okay. Now, research has shown that the effectiveness of scalp cooling varies. I know it can depend on the type of chemotherapy, the dose of the chemotherapy, and I believe also the fit of the cap is very important. So could, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that's right. The, the success of scalp cooling depends on a number of factors, uh, some of which you've touched on. One of them is certainly the type of chemotherapy. So certain chemotherapies tend to cause more hair loss or alopecia uh, than others. 
And so, for example, chemotherapy agents like uh, the taxanes, in particular paclitaxel, which is also called taxol, tends to be fairly successful for scalp cooling. Docetaxel, which is also taxotere, uh, also can be successful. But then when you start using them in combinations, such as docetaxel cyclophosphamide or the TC regimen, very common in breast cancer, uh, that becomes a little bit tougher, although still successful. And then the anthracycline drugs, which is the famous adriamycin, when that's used in combinations, that's actually a little bit tougher on the hair, um, and so that can have less success. In addition, the quality or type of hair, uh, so some patients just start off having thinner hair to begin with, and if you have thinner hair to begin with, I think the success potentially could be um, a little bit uh, lower. And part of the reason is even for successful scalp cooling, we still anticipate that you'll have some thinning or shedding of the hair. So if you start off with less to begin with, you just have less cushion to lose before it might become more noticeable. In addition, the thickness of the hair in terms of the texture can be an issue. And so uh, there's actually charts that show different types of hair styles between um, very thin, uh, straight hair versus very curly uh, uh, and tightly curled hair. And sometimes some of the curled hair, particularly in, in some of our uh, African-American patients, can cause a little bit more insulation. And so it might require uh, longer pre-cooling um, or a tighter fit. Then, of course, the time um, that people wear the cap um, can make a difference. Um, so most of the manufacturers uh, have certain time recommendations for pre-cooling and then how much um, to use um, after. Um, and those are just some of the factors that we think about when, when we're discussing cold caps with a patient and, and whether or not it might uh, be right for them. Okay. And I do, I, I kind of want to touch on the fit because I know when you talked about how the, the manual caps that need a helper to help somebody put them on um, are being very labor intensive. My understanding is that the fit of those is very important for even cooling and can affect the effectiveness is that I think the fit with any of the um, any of the approaches is very important. With the with the manual caps, and there's several, uh, but one of the manufacturers has a gel filled cap that basically you fold around the head, and there's Velcro uh, sort of Velcro on it, so you can actually get a pretty snug. It's actually a pretty tight fit, and it can be adjusted so it's pretty tight. The machine uh, approaches, the scalp cooling machine approaches, um, some of those caps um, are sort of three sizes, small, medium, or large. Um, and so there can be some pockets depending on the shape of the person's head. And so you do have to, when you're doing the fitting, pay attention to make sure that you're not leaving any air pockets um, in there. Um, and so it, it it is quite important to have a snug fit. And one of the uh, you know, there is somewhat of a learning curve. Um, patients tend to get better as the weeks go on or the, the, the cycles go on. But really, if that first cycle, you leave an air gap and you're not making good contact with the scalp and it's not cooling in a certain area, even even with just missing that first uh, treatment, you can start to see hair loss from that. So it's really important that even from day one uh, that you ensure a, a snug fit. Okay, thank you. There was a study that came out last October, October 2020, and it apparently was some of the first research to really look at the mechanism of scalp cooling, because what I had read before was that it was thought to work because it constricted or narrowed the blood vessels in the scalp, so that stopped the chemotherapy as much chemotherapy medicine from going to the scalp. Um, but this study also showed that it actually also reduced the amount of chemotherapy medicine that the hair follicles were absorbing. So is that 
sort of a different mechanism or do they work together, I guess, help us sort of understand that research? So I think it's important to understand that we actually, even though scalp cooling has been around for, for decades in Europe, we actually don't know the precise mechanism for why it works. The two leading hypotheses for many years has been exactly what you uh, alluded to. Uh, one is that by cooling the scalp, you cause constriction of the small uh, blood vessels, the capillaries that supply the blood uh, to the hair follicles. And by constricting that, the thought was that you reduce the concentration of chemotherapy that actually gets to the hair follicles. And certainly hair follicles are among the fastest uh, growing and dividing cells in the body, chemotherapy. Uh, targets uh, rapidly dividing cells, such as cancer, but also the hair follicles, and, and the thought was that could reduce hair loss. The other uh, thought was that by cooling the hair follicles, you put them into um, a hibernation-like state and lower the metabolic activity to make them less susceptible. Um, and that's you know similar to sometimes if if you're doing an organ transplant, you see they put the organ on ice to prevent any any you know damage. And the idea is by cooling. Um, these cells, you you uh, uh, can help prevent them from being exposed to the toxicity of chemotherapy. The study you're referring to came out in October and was really some of the first experimental evidence uh, showing a potential third mechanism. And and I guess I would say it's not entirely different, uh, but it's a little bit more precise. And the idea here is that by cooling the uh, hair follicles. What you do is you make the, the plasma membrane, the, the lipid membrane of the cell more rigid, um, and that might then prevent uh, the chemotherapy from diffusing into the, into the cell and, and basically lowering the concentration of chemotherapy that gets into the cell to then target the nucleus and cause the cell to die. So I think um, it's, it's a first experiment, I think, to really demonstrate this. Um, I think whether or not this is what's happening on people's scalps, we still have to test experimentally. But I think this is really important to try and understand this better, because certainly once we can understand better the mechanism of why scalp cooling works, I think that will let us focus on potential ways to improve uh, the delivery systems and, and what we're trying to accomplish. Okay, that makes sense. So if we can better understand the actual mechanism behind the success of it, maybe we could make it more effective. Like maybe in the future, we could see like, oh, okay, maybe it will work with the anthracycline chemotherapies. We just need to do something different. Yeah, and I think it allows us to think even more creatively. If, for example, we learn that it, it turns out it is this diffusion of chemotherapy across the cell membrane, maybe there are other ways to accomplish that, um, you know, using uh, medical or biologic approaches uh, to reduce permeability during chemotherapy. So, um, so I think th this was a really um, helpful study, and I, I hope will open the door to more uh, experimental research on understanding scalp cooling. Okay. That's, that sounds very interesting. So I, I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about access to scalp cooling because I've talked to a few people uh, who've had chemotherapy and some have said, my doctor didn't even bring it up. I had to do all my own research. Nobody at my infusion center mentioned it. So my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the automated cooling system, so I'm thinking of the Paxman system and the Dignicap system, they are either rented or purchased by the treatment facilities and they're there and then people would pay a fee to use them. And then the other, the individual caps, the manual caps are usually rented 
by the person who's getting chemotherapy. And then the person also has to either has to get the dry ice on their own and they have to have somebody there to help them change the cap. So do we have any idea, like, I guess I'll start with the, of the automated systems. Do we have any idea how many there are available in the United States and are they more likely to be say at larger facilities or research facilities that are affiliated with the university? Yeah, so, um, and, and the description of, of uh, how these work um, that you gave is, is uh, quite accurate. So, um, and then just to, just to summarize, um, the centers essentially rent um, from the, the scalp cooling machine companies. And as you said, Dignicap and Paxman are the two um, that are both FDA uh, cleared systems in the United States. And uh, it's, a, it's a nominal you know, charge to the institution. And then the patient, um, uh, the, the model is the patient then uh, rents the, or I should say purchases the cap and rents the use of the machine uh, from the company directly. So the, the charge is um, based on how many uses are anticipated. Um, my understanding is uh, presently there's over 500 um, sites in the United States. I believe somewhere in the order of about 350 sites have the Paxman system and about 200 or so uh, may have the Dignicap system. And that number is growing all the time. Um, uh, more and more centers, I think, uh, are trying to get these these machines as as the uh, use of scalp cooling is growing and patients are really asking for it. I think it's probably for the moment, if you were to look, probably uh, more accessible in in larger cities. Um, and I think that just probably has more to do with it takes a certain number of um, a certain volume of patients, I think, for it to become useful or reasonable for an individual center to have this. So for some uh, rural centers that may not, you know, that may treat all kinds of cancers and may not have a high volume of breast cancer per se, it, it just may not make financial sense for them. Um, but I do think it is expanding. Um, I don't think it's limited to research facilities. I'm aware of many private um, oncology centers um, that have this. Um, and I think patients are really uh, learning about it more from from forums like this and from friends of friends, and uh, more and more patients are asking for it. And I think it's it's becoming much more clear to the individual uh, uh, oncology centers that this is really something that um, that is really necessary to provide uh, state of the art care for our patients. For the um, uh, gel caps, um, and the, the most common one currently are the penguin caps, and there's a few other companies like Arctic Cold Caps. Uh, you're correct. For that one, the patient orders them directly from, uh, from the company. Um, they rent them at a monthly fee, and then the patient is responsible for picking up the dry ice. Um, and usually for the penguin caps, you need to have someone with you to help put the caps on. Um, so it's a little bit more involved, but it's really um, the patient uh, takes control of, of managing that. Um, there are a number of sites um, that do supply freezers on site. That's one of the models that Penguin Caps has, where some sites will have a freezer where you can keep the cap, um, and that way you don't need to bring in the dry ice. Um, the challenge there is it's harder for the caps to cool um, within the sort of cycle, um, because it's not as cold as the dry ice, so you generally need to have more caps um, on site. And obviously, the you know the freezer takes up some storage space, but some centers uh, do have that model as well. Okay, interesting, interesting. And 
I guess to help me sort of visualize if if somebody is using the manual cap system and say they have to come in with, I don't know, six caps, is that, I mean, is that like a giant box of stuff? Is it heavy? Is it like a little suitcase? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah. So yeah, I, I have a number of patients who, um, so we have the Paxman system at our institution, but I do have some patients who choose to use the Penguin system, for example. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. Okay. Um, and, it's, and, and basically the company sends, um, uh, you know, a decent size igloo uh, cooler, uh, similar to something you might take to the beach, um, but they send it with a little uh, carry dolly. So you can put it on wheels, and they also send a, a infrared thermometer so you can test the temperature um, and pretty thorough um, instructions. Um, it is heavy, but but patients um, are able to wheel it in um, or their helper um, wheel it in. And then it's it's all rented, and when it's done, it just gets sent back to the um, uh, to the company. Okay. And just also, so I'm assuming the um, the automated systems like Paxman or Dignicap, it's really just the cap that the person would have to bring in because everything else is already there. Is that right? That's right. So the refrigeration unit is there. And, um, and, and for example, Paxman sends a, a very nice kit in a small handbag. Um, okay. And in that kit comes the uh, silicone cap as well as the insulating cover, uh, which is basically like a neoprene cover, like almost like a scuba diving uh, cap. Um, but then they also give you a headband um, to keep your forehead warm, uh, a squirt bottle to wet your hair, some conditioner, um, a wide tooth comb. So, you know, kind of all this and, 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 um, and the information, and it comes in a, in a small, uh, you know, lightweight um, uh, handbag. And that really has everything you need um, to, to do the, the scalp cooling. Okay, great. Now, I know that the cost for scalp cooling can vary. Do you have any sense whether it's widely covered by insurance or, or does that vary as well? So the cost does vary, although most of the companies have sort of, their, their prices are all quite similar and, and uh, all of them, uh, maximum out of pocket would be $2,200, I believe, for all of them. Um, Penguin works on a monthly rental. Uh, Paxman and Dignicap work as a per use uh, sort of fee. Um, and with that initial purchase comes the cap. Um, uh, so unfortunately, it's not universally um, covered by insurance. I've had several patients where I've written letters and they have gotten it reimbursed uh, as sort of a one-off. Um, myself and many of my colleagues throughout the, the country are working very hard to try and get insurance to cover this more routinely. Um, this is now in the National Comprehensive Cancer Network uh, uh, breast cancer guidelines to consider scalp cooling for chemotherapy. Um, there are now at least uh, two randomized clinical trials in the United States. These two devices are FDA cleared. Um, one positive step um, has been uh, recently the American Medical Association uh, announced uh, new what's called CPT codes, which are procedure codes that now include um, scalp cooling devices. Um, and so that's, um, we hope, uh, the first step to try and get the insurance companies to more universally um, do this. Um, but there are many ongoing efforts um, because one of the key things, certainly for our institution, and I know for, for all the institutions that do this, is, um, is equity of access. And we really don't want this to be something and we really don't think it's it's ethically appropriate to be something that's only um, available to patients who can pay out of pocket and afford it. We really think that this is a, a critical piece of people's care 
Um, there's a lot of research showing um, that chemotherapy hesitancy can be linked to the, the fear of alopecia. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, long-term quality of life and self-image issues that come out of this. So we really think it's an essential uh, medical necessity. Um, and, and, you know, we, again, certainly support our patients in writing letters, but we do hope that in the, in the, in the near future, hopefully within the next couple of years, we'll see um, some more universal coverage. We think that's critical. Yeah, that would be great. And I am curious, too, um, you mentioned about writing letters for some of your patients, and that would be a one-off. I'm wondering about metastatic patients who maybe go through two, three, four different cycles of chemotherapy. Um, my, I've talked to one woman who has metastatic disease, and she said to, her insurance company paid for the first round, but they said no for rounds two and three. Uh, you know, is that something that you're also talking about as far as coverage? Absolutely. So the the, the, random, the two randomized trials that were done in the United States were done in early stage patients. Okay. Um, many centers that I'm aware of limit the use of scalp cooling to early stage patients. However, um, we at our center and, and many other centers that I'm aware of do allow advanced cancer patients to use it. Um, and I've had many um, metastatic patients um, who have used it. Um, and in fact, at our institution, we have one patient who, uh, believe it or not, is I think 18 months into using scalp cooling now, which is quite impressive. Wow. Um, and um, it, when we talked about the cost of scalp cooling, uh, you might recall that that um, the companies tend to maxim, have a maximum limit for out-of-pocket of 2200 mm -hmm. So even if it's not covered um, for, the, for the Paxman machine, for example, that equals 12 uses. So whether you're getting 12 weeks of weekly taxol in the early stage or in the advanced stage, you're on taxol for a year, um, your out-of-pocket limit will be you know, capped at 2200 And I believe Dignicap has the same process and, and, um, uh, and uh, Penguin Caps and, and the others, I believe, also. So, um, so I, I'm strongly in favor of it um, to be available for metastatic patients, um, particularly with breast cancer, where our patients can live for a very long time and live very full and active lives with advanced disease. Um, keeping your hair is, I think, part of that. Um, so, so we certainly advocate for that. Okay, thank you. So if somebody wanted to try scalp cooling, what are the top three things you would tell them? Are there, are there tips? Are there pointers you would give them? Yeah, so I think the first thing I would say is if you want to try it, try it. Um, if, if you find that you're too cold or if it doesn't work, you can always stop. Um, but I think if it's something you're interested in, um, you know, the first thing I would say is, is don't be afraid to try it um, and just, just go for it. And if it doesn't work, you know, most of the companies have some reimbursement or refund for unused uses or things like that. But, but I think give it a try. Probably the second thing is, is just to understand that the scalp cooling process is not just the few hours on the day that you're doing your treatment. It does require um, uh, being careful with your hair basically throughout the time you're being treated. And so there's lots of recommendations like, uh, you know, as I mentioned, use a wide tooth comb, try and limit uh, hair treatments and other things that can be somewhat uh, uh, rough on your hair. Um, your hair can be a little bit more brittle. So just just know that it's not just the, you know, once a week or once every two or three week uh, that you need to think about it. 
it's really um, taking care of your hair according to the recommendations from each of the, the companies um, in accordance with, with what they recommend um, to, to best increase the chance of keeping your hair. And um, I, think, I think the third thing I would tell people is, um, you know, ask your provider if they have it. And if, if they don't and it's important to you, you know, seek out a provider that does. I think, you know, as I mentioned, this is really not something we look at as just a cosmetic thing. This is really um, a lot about quality of life during treatment. Um, so, you know, be proactive. And, and if your provider doesn't mention it, they may have forgotten. They may not have it. But just ask about it. Um, and and don't be dissuaded. I, I've I've had a lot of patients who've come to me for a second opinion, where their initial provider said, "Oh, that doesn't work," or you know, "Don't try it." Um, you know, I think we have a fair amount of evidence that it can work. And and um, if it's something you're interested in, and and you're, you know, told not to, um, you know, seek out someone who who's willing to talk to you about it, um, and let you try it. Excellent. Dr. Isakov, thank you so much. This has been really great information. I'm sure it will help a lot of people. My pleasure. I appreciate the invitation to participate. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.